fun. Get a moment here for our technology to get fired up. Great. So if you were here uh, last Sunday, we had a little bit of a a hiking story. Uh, Dashell and I have something we enjoy together, and we were able to go and do a little bit of that in in Banff this summer. And, uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about that. If if you go to to any uh, national park like Banff or Waterton or wherever you go, there's, there's hikes, if you will, and then there's hikes. You know what I mean? So on the lowercase kind of hikes, uh, things get pretty crowded. Those are the ones that are in all the brochures, and they're not very difficult, and the tour buses drop the people right off, and so they're crowded. And you see, on these kind of hikes, you see a variety of people. You see city people in in flip-flops. You see the busloads of usually Asian tourists with way more gear than they need for going on a one-kilometer stroll down a paved path, right? They've got like six cameras and a whole bunch of expensive like North Face or Patagonia stuff that they bought at the hotel gift shop, and it's all brand new and and whatever. It is what it is. And you see the families with the strollers, and it's just always very crowded. And then there's the uppercase hikes, if you will. Now, some of them are a bit touristy, but you leave a lot of that behind. You don't see as many of those types of of strictly tourists. You see a variety of other people, right? A lot of fit, retired people, uh, other 20 and 30-something couples. Uh, If it's a particularly interesting day, you might see your waitress from the previous evening because she's just waitressing in the evenings to finance her outdoor adventure habit during the day. Uh, you see these kind of peoples. And then you also see these obnoxious fitness types that they run up the trails. And it doesn't matter how steep, it doesn't matter how rocky or tree root covered it is, there they are sprinting just about up the mountainside at high elevation. And you're just like, what is wrong with you? But good on them, I guess. But if you want to go on these types of hikes, like flip-flops and good intentions are not going to cut it, you're going to need some sort of sturdy shoes, adequate food and water, probably a bit of protective clothing uh, in case it rains or in case it's really hot, and a reasonable amount of physical fitness. You don't have to run the whole way, but you do need a certain amount of conditioning because 20 kilometers still is what it is, right? And each summer, people don't heed that they need a certain amount of you know, water and a certain amount of physical fitness and sturdy shoes. And they try to do hikes that are too difficult for their gear or their level of fitness. And the park staff has to go and rescue them. They, dehydration is common. Heat exhaustion and ankle injuries are pretty common because people aren't, aren't wearing proper footwear. And so the park staff has to go out there lugging water and cold packs along to try to get these people's temperature down and get their dehydration under control so they can coax them down off the mountain. All that to say the view from the top is nice, but it's not exactly for everyone and it's not exactly for the unprepared. And today we begin a new sermon series on the book of Psalms. This kind of was our practice last summer as what we're doing again this summer because it allows us to to look at God's word in a way that doesn't necessarily build 
one Sunday to the next to the next, the way uh, we were when we were just going through the Sermon on the Mount recently. Because we know that people come and they go and people are on vacations. And so this, this makes a way that we can still spend significant time in an important part of God's Word, uh, but you don't have to feel like you've missed something if you've been away on vacation. So we're going to start with Psalm 15, because that also sets kind of a criteria for not necessarily standing on a mountain in a national park, but standing on God's holy hill. So we'll read that together. If you want to stand, as we typically do during our sermon passage, Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is God's word. You can have a seat. So having just spent the last number of weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, this this probably should be pretty familiar territory. There's even a mountain or a hill, whichever translation you've got in front of you. And the content sounds pretty familiar. I remember mentioning a few times in our series on the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught in a particularly kind of Old Testament Jewish wisdom fashion. And and you can hear the connections and the parallels in the passage today, right? Emphasis on speaking truthfully, keeping your word, doing right by your neighbor, and in particular, the need for alignment between your heart and your outer actions, So as we take a last look back at the Sermon on the Mount and we look to this passage, what do we do about all this? What do we do when we see the requirements and the standards that God sets for dwelling in his presence? And then we look at our own lives and we wonder, hmm, it doesn't really match up, right? What do we do when we read in God's word when it says, if you want to dwell in God's presence, walk blamelessly and speak truth in our hearts? but we know we haven't and and we don't consistently. What do we do when we feel that sense of uh, maybe guilt or conviction that comes with that? Well, we'll get to that, but let's let Scripture have its say, and then we will unpack what that might mean for how we ought to live. David begins by asking a couple of questions, and these these address kind of a, a burning theme throughout the book of Psalms, dwelling in God's presence. If you look over a page or two to Psalm 24, it's very similar to Psalm, uh, Psalm 15, actually, and we kind of sang uh, a lot of the parts of Psalm 24. He asks a pretty similar question there. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand or dwell in his holy place? Different words between the two psalms, but the same idea and the same passion for being in the presence of God. Or consider some of these other passages in the psalms. Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Or Psalm 84, 2 and 10. 
My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Now, if you remember the story of King David, you'll remember the story of him bringing the Ark of God's Covenant up into Jerusalem, right? The Ark that was God's dwelling place on earth. And it had been kind of forsaken and abandoned and was just off in the stick somewhere. And King David wanted to provide a place. Because he had conquered the city of Jerusalem and he had made it the city of David. But by bringing God's holy ark and installing it there in this city, it made it the city of God. And it made it thereafter known as Mount Zion. And David's passion for the presence of the Lord meant he wanted to build a permanent structure to house the Ark of God's Covenant, but he was instructed that his son Solomon was to be the one that did that. And so the Ark remained in its portable tabernacle or tent. But nevertheless, David's bringing the Ark up to Jerusalem, to to Mount Zion. It established an ongoing place, a permanent location where God's presence would dwell with his people. And that was really the high watermark of David's whole career, of bringing the Ark of God's Covenant into the holy city. But if you remember the story, you also remember that the Ark of the Covenant and God's presence that dwelt there was not something to be trifled with. Now, do you remember the, the, that rather gruesome scene in Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they decided to open up the Ark of the Covenant and see what was inside there, right? And what happened? Well, the fire of God just swept out and consumed them all. And it was kind of gruesome in the way that 1980s special effects were gruesome. Uh, That's a fictional portrayal, of course. But we read in Scripture this very thing actually happened. David had to make two attempts to get the Ark of the Covenant from where it was up to the city of Jerusalem. Because the first time they had it loaded on an ox cart and they were going near a threshing floor where the ground was rough and the cart... uh, went over the rough ground and shook, and this guy called Uzzah, he put out his hand to steady God's ark from falling off the cart, and when he touched the ark, the the wrath of the Lord burst out against him and struck him dead. I don't know if his face melted, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but he died. The anger of the Lord was kindled against him. Or maybe you remember uh, Nadab and Abihu in that story from the Old Testament, right? They didn't do things right in the holy place And God struck them down too. Or maybe you remember the instructions for the high priest in the book of Leviticus. Now we find a lot of these instructions pretty boring. Because we're like, oh, more instructions about blue threads and bells and garments and all this. But all of those instructions end with the same thing. Do this in this certain and very specific way so that you don't die. And I would imagine if you were actually going to fulfill this priestly role, it wouldn't be boring because your life would be on the line and you would make sure you were doing things correctly. There's even this kind of old Jewish legend. It's not in the Bible, and I don't actually know if it's true. Scholars debate that. But that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his ankle in case the presence of the Lord struck him dead so that they could pull him back out. In any case, dwelling in God's holy tent... And ministering in his presence was not something to be taken lightly and not for the faint of heart. Now, why is that? Well, it's because God is holy and his holiness isn't compatible with sin. And no amount of good intentions or mustered up sincerity is enough to make up for that difference. So who can sojourn in God's holy tent? 
who can dwell on his holy hill? Well, the technical answer from God's law is that the Levitical priests can do that. If they do the right things, if they wear the right garments, if they do the right ceremonies and offer the proper sacrifices, they can do that. But this isn't specifically where King David goes. And this is kind of another characteristic of King David's theology throughout the Psalms. He's not unaware and he's not against the ceremonies and the Levitical priesthood and so forth. He doesn't tend to emphasize it that much, though. He emphasizes personal holiness. If you remember those famous verses in Psalm 51, 16 and 17, David says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So we have here two different but not unrelated answers. The problem, though, is that neither of them are very encouraging when it comes to how we dwell in God's presence. Neither of them portray ascending God's hill as something you can just do. It's not something the average person just undertakes to do of their own, of their own will and their own effort. You remember when I talked about being annoyed by those over-eager trail runners that just go sprinting up the mountainside like it's no big deal because they're super physically fit Well, it's kind of like that just in a spiritual sense, right? It's only the top-notch performers that can stand in God's presence. The rest of the psalm basically unpacks this one word, blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? Well, the first aspect of being blameless has to do with our speech. And this is a major theme throughout the Bible, and of course it's a major theme for good reason. Our speech, and and in today's culture, we would probably have to include electronic speech that we print out with our fingers online. It's a major issue because our speech has the ability to tear down individuals and communities. And that's the focus here, right? Not slandering your neighbor. If you look down a couple lines to verse 4, keeping your word even when it hurts. How many broken families Broken friendships, broken churches even are there because people were not careful about the way they spoke. And they said things that they probably wished they could get back but they couldn't. Or they said things in a hurtful way even if they were true. They said things that maybe would have been better left unsaid. They talked about someone to someone else instead of going to the person directly. We've, we've all been there, right? We've probably all done it. I think we can all recognize what David's getting at here, right? Gossiping about people, criticizing people before you know the facts, proclaiming kind of assumptions built on more assumptions as as the truth that you can take to the bank. We've probably been victims of it. We've probably participated in it. It's something that all of us have struggled with at one time or another, I'm sure. But here's the thing. It's not just the words that come out of our mouths or, or off of our fingers, as it were, And this should be sounding some echoes from the Sermon on the Mount. We've spent a lot of time there. What matters is our hearts. It's not just enough that you didn't say something bad about someone in public. It's not even enough that you didn't say something about them in private. It's that you weren't believing these things and letting them fester in your heart. And that's a scary thought. At least it should be. Is how how we don't... It's not just the unkind words we've said. It's those, those bitter thoughts that we've had in our inmost heart. All those times we've believed lies about other people. 
all the times we've assumed the worst about others, all those times we've wished them ill in our inmost thoughts. Our speech matters, and I suspect there's nobody here who can honestly say, oh, I've got that 100% under control, Pastor. Bring on the next thing. I know I sure don't. The first part of verse 4 is kind of a tough saying. It says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But doesn't Jesus tell us, well, love your enemies, though? What do we do with this? Well, first of all, we have to admit it's kind of a difficulty, and it's kind of everywhere in the Psalms. There are a lot of places where David and the other psalm writers proclaim their their hatred for their enemies, even asking God to smite their enemies. Now, granted, they lived in a time and in a culture where your enemies weren't maybe just people that annoyed you or said bad things about you. Like, they were actual enemies who might find you in the nighttime and cut your throat. This is the... The Old Testament historical books, have you given those a read lately? They kind of, you know, they can give any of the blood and gore in modern novels a run for their money. It's kind of Game of Thrones, the original series. The Book of Judges? My goodness. So let's remember that. This is the kind of enemies and the kind of situation that they lived in. But still, how do we take into account and how do we apply Jesus' command to love our enemies and not take vengeance? Well, you know, I really can't come up with anything better than that old love the sinner and and hate the sin. It's not always easy to get right. It's not always easy to separate the two. But at the end of the day, I, I I think it's what we have to do. But do we hate the sin? That's the thing, right? We hate certain sins. I've said before, I think, we often hate the sins that we're not really in danger of, of committing ourselves, that we see other people committing, and then that gives us a certain feeling of self-righteousness. But what about things that are more subtle, right? When we see wealth and power and fame and the other results that can come from a a sinful and self-centered lifestyle and we see people living that way, I think there's a certain part inside many of us that kind of admires or at least is attracted to some of those trappings of that kind of a lifestyle, right? You see what I'm getting at. We can look at famous people and celebrities and so forth out there, and we might condemn certain aspects of their lifestyle, promiscuity or something like that, for instance, but we can still kind of harbor in our hearts a certain fascination with or or longing for their fame, their wealth, their image, some of those kind of things. I'm kind of fascinated with that if, if we're honest with ourselves sometimes. Right? And compare that with the regard we have for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's, that's the flip side here. The person that can stand in God's presence despises this way of living but honors the person that fears the Lord. And just think of, well, would you rather have dinner with some famous person because, you know, sports star maybe who isn't a Christian, who isn't living a very Christ-centered kind of life, or a brother and sister in the faith that you maybe don't even know particularly well who isn't anyone important. How much time do we spend on these kind of things? What kind of regard do we pay to these different kinds of people? Now we come to an even more touchy subject, though. Money. And again, there's a specific context issue at play, but there are things that we can apply more broadly as well. In this passage, it talks about not charging interest and 
The charging of interest or not charging interest, that's got a long and winding history throughout both Judaism and Christianity, and something is probably a little too big for us to unpack in the time that remains to us this morning. I think a compelling case can be made, perhaps, that there's a difference between interest and that good old King James Version word, usury, And I think we can distinguish between a loan for subsistence and a loan for capital, such as a loan to start a business or a mortgage and so forth. That's maybe a discussion for another day. You can go find some good books on the subject, I'm sure, in our local library uh, or uh, commentaries online, whatever. Uh, We'll just leave it at that. But to say, all that to say, the Bible is pretty clear that like our speech, what we do with our wealth matters a lot. The great reformer Martin Luther talked about that we actually have to go through three conversions. You know, the first is our, our conversion of our heart. It's where we often feel the conviction of sin and the sorrow over it and what gives us the, the desire to become converted. And then comes the conversion of our, of our minds or perhaps our wills, we might say. And then the third conversion is the conversion pertaining to our wealth. And that's third because it usually takes the longest for us to actually get to and, and surrender to the Lord. And again, we're right back where we were recently in the Sermon on the Mount, aren't we? How much time did Jesus spend unpacking what we do with wealth, right? You can't love both God and money. You, you, can't, you can't make it your treasure. Don't store up your treasures on earth. Store up your treasure in heaven. Use your wealth rightly. I would suspect all of us would do well to look at our finances and consider how we're using them. This is, this is bigger than just setting a percent and giving it to your local church and to other worthwhile causes. Although some of us probably would do well to say, you know what, I am going to set a percent. I'm going to take it off the top. I'm not going to wait and kind of see what I feel I can justify giving away at the end once I've spent all the things I want to this month. Maybe that's a challenge we want to set ourselves, giving, giving from the top rather than just from our leftovers. Perhaps some of us need to go a little deeper and consider what we're actually spending our money on. What kind of businesses are we supporting with our money? Do our spending habits look any different than people outside of the Christian faith? Not just our charitable giving, but our spending habits more broadly maybe. Are there ways we could live more simply and and with less waste of the resources that God provides to us? Because biblical stewardship isn't just setting X percent and this is what I'm going to give away to worthy causes. That's just sort of voluntary taxation. Biblical stewardship isn't just setting that aside and then being like, I'll use the rest for kind of whatever I want to use it for. The rest is mine. Biblical stewardship says that all your wealth is God's wealth that he's given you to look after and to use on his behalf and calls us to use all our financial resources in the service of God and his kingdom. And again, that's a pretty high calling. And then David says, the one who does these things shall never be moved. And yet many of us will know the feeling of living for the Lord, albeit imperfectly, of course, and knowing that we don't feel that sense of security or the closeness of his presence. Maybe far from feeling not moved, you feel pretty shaken in your life, in what's going on, in your circumstances. If you haven't now, you probably will at some point, or you probably have in the past. So what do we do with that? Well, let's step back 
and take a second look at that theme of, of God's holy hill. It's true that there is a historical, earthly specific reference that's being made here to Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is, where the temple was. But it's also true that throughout Scripture, this idea, this theme of God's hill, God's mountain, comes to mean something far beyond just the actual physical Mount Zion, where the temple was constructed. In our earlier Scripture text from Isaiah, we saw the ultimate expression of God's holy hill. And it was summed up in that wonderful and and loaded phrase, in that day. Because this isn't just about a physical location, a specific place in the Middle East. This isn't even just about God's presence in our earthly lives. This is about eternal redemption and the healing of all hurts and wrongs. This is about arriving safe home with God. And that lovely phrase where God's going to swallow up death forever on his holy mountain. And then when we're there, we pass beyond the reach of sorrow and pain and sin and ultimately death. In this life, we might well be moved. We might well feel shaken, but not then. If we've taken the way of our Lord, we have that assurance. We have the assurance that the path will lead us to the destination, God's holy hill forever in his presence, even if it's hard to follow sometimes, even if the path doesn't just cut a a straight and unbroken and, and clear way straight there. It might wind. It might be rough and hard to follow at times, but it will take us there if we're walking with our Lord. And we have the assurance that once our destination is reached, It is unshakable. Some of us might have a different concern as we conclude, however. As I mentioned earlier, some of us might look at the standard here, blameless, and all the ways that gets fleshed out in the verses that follow, and conclude, well, that is is not me. I, I struggle with my speech. I struggle with saying things that almost immediately I wish I could put back inside and not have said. I struggle with what I do with my finances because I see stuff and I want to buy it. I struggle with a lot of these things. And when we see that, we can feel somewhat crushed, overwhelmed even. We feel we just can't get control of these things, so what are we supposed to do? What do we do then? Well, first, I would say recognize the conviction as not... A purely bad thing, right? Scripture tells us that the conviction of sin is a work of the Holy Spirit. And so if, if the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives convicting us of sin, it, it might not be pleasant, but it is a good thing. Rejoice in it, actually, because it's something to be thankful for. If you weren't a child of God, if you didn't have the Holy Spirit active in your life, you probably wouldn't care about any of this. The conviction of sin is a sign that God's Spirit is working in you and that you're actually becoming sensitive to that. That's a good thing. Second, look to Jesus. It's pretty basic, but it's super important. The Old Testament law we've looked at emphasized that only the high priest could go in into the inner sanctum of God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And that only once a year. And King David here emphasizes 
another aspect of who can come before God. And he says you have to be blameless to come into God's presence and dwell there. But in Jesus Christ, we have both. Jesus fulfilled and completed all the requirements of the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. And he is our great high priest forever. He's interceding for us at the Father's right hand even now. We don't have to come into God's presence based on our own work and doing all of those things, but because of what Christ has already done, his finished and accomplished work on our behalf. So he's our great high priest, but he's also blameless in our place. He lived the perfectly blameless life. He was blameless in all he did and in all he said. He spoke only the truth. He kept to his mission even when it hurt. It cost him everything. He gave all he had. Again, we don't come into God's presence based on our own efforts to be blameless, even if that's the call, but we come into his presence because of Christ's blamelessness on our behalf, on his perfect completion already for us of what it means to be blameless. And then thirdly, and this is third because the other two need to come first. Thirdly, live for him. We stand in need of God's grace today and every day. But that must never become an excuse for us just to remain in our sins. Right? The reality that we stand in need of God's grace every day, maybe even every hour, exists alongside the reality that God's grace gives freedom Freedom from the bondage to sin. Freedom to live for him instead. So we need to look to that as well. And I hope that the passion that David has for living in God's presence and living in God's way has come through as we've looked at even a few of these scriptures here. It's just it's kind of the heartbeat of the Psalms as we're going to look at. Being in God's presence, dwelling near the presence of the Lord. We don't ever hear David saying, I don't know, I, I want to be close to God, but I'm, I'm kind of worried about works righteousness, so I'm just going to coast here and not, not try too hard because that wouldn't be a good thing. I want to drift into that, or legalism. No, he says, I want more of the Lord. I want more of his presence. I want more of, of his spirit in my life. I want to live a life that's pleasing to him. I want to live a life that is in constant communion with him. David is going for it all in, as we're going to see in some more of the Psalms in this series. This is his passion in life. And it's, I hope, challenging to us, but also encouraging to us. Because it's a joyful, wonderful thing. If you felt God bringing some area in your own life to your attention, right? Maybe it's something, maybe it's something we've discussed today. Maybe it's something to do with your finances or something to do with your speech or something to do with what you're paying attention to, what you're giving the most regard to and honor to in your life. Maybe it's something totally different that the Lord's been working on you this week or, or just lately whenever you open up his word or spend time in prayer. And there's this, we've all had that happen, I'm sure, where there's this little thought that you just can't quite get rid of. The Lord's Lord's convicting you of something or the Lord's prompting you towards something. Do what you need to in order to deal with that. Pray through it specifically. If you're not quite sure what that means or set aside some time to specifically pray for it to hear what the Lord wants you to do. 
If nothing else, ask him to give you the passion for living in his presence like David had. And go for it. Clear out some junk in your life if you need to that's, that's distracting you, that's preventing you from being in God's presence. Make some room for it. There's nothing more important that you could do in your life. I don't know about what your summer has been like, but at our house, we've been, we've been doing this in our home. We've been, it started with the tool shed project, which you've heard about, I'm sure. And the tool shed project, it moved in from there. Okay, now there's all this stuff that's in our back laundry and storage room that I'd like to move into the tool shed. Now there's stuff under the stairs that I'd like to move into that storage room so it's more easily accessible. And before you know it, you're kind of, you're chasing it from room to room to room all over the house. And it takes a lot of work. You, you, and you find, maybe I should just sell this or get rid of it or throw it away. It's hard to do and you live in a mess for a while. But the end result is you have a home that has junk cleared out of it that's getting in your way that you're tripping over all the time that isn't where it belongs. You've put things in their proper place. You've cleared out some space and things are actually set up well. We're not quite done that and and that's maybe okay because in a spiritual sense we're never going to be quite done that in this life either. But it's a good metaphor for what we can begin working on in our own lives even today. Do we need to to clear some stuff out that's getting in the way, that we're always tripping over, that's preventing us living the kind of life with the Lord that we want to? There's nothing more important that you could do than that. I don't think there's really any prayer that the Lord would rather hear from you or be more eager to grant to you. So that's what we'll do now. We'll, we'll close and spend a little bit of time in prayer. If, if you need to, to spend some more time in prayer uh, today, our prayer room's available later. Maybe you want to set aside some time to go out for a walk on the grid road or something or set aside some time to sit in the backyard and talk to the Lord about this. Um, but let's begin that right now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you call us to live in your presence in this life and ultimately with you in eternity forever. And we thank you for the way this this theme of your, your holy hill develops and is made more clear in scripture and that we can look forward to not being shaken in eternity. Uh, You'll swallow up death and pain forever and ever when we're with you. That's a wonderful promise. It gives us something to be excited about, Lord. It gives us something to hope for, even in this life when things aren't, aren't going the way that we want to. And it gives us hope and assurance that we'll make it there with you, even though we struggle and, and following you is sometimes difficult. The way is winding and our own, our own sins and failures get in the way of, of that perfect ongoing communion with you that we long for. But we do pray for it, Lord. We pray that we wouldn't just wait till that day uh, to live in your presence, that we would be eager and passionate about it now as we see so frequently in the Psalms that David and, and the other Psalm writers as well were, were passionate and eager to live in your presence, live in this open communion with you. We're eager to, to get rid of the things 
in their lives that were preventing that from happening. And Lord, maybe we're finding the same kind of conviction of those things uh, today alongside uh, the passion that we're feeling for your presence. Uh, Lord, we could confess and admit it's easy to get excited and feel that, that eagerness on a Sunday morning, but on a Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon, uh, when the challenges of life are real and right in our face, it can be difficult. Things get in the way. They trip us up. But it, for those who are maybe feeling that conviction of some things that they need to deal with, would they recognize and even take comfort in the fact that that conviction is a gift from your Holy Spirit and it's a sign that you're working in their lives, even though it, it might be cause some pain to admit that and be honest about that. It's, it's a gift from you. It's one of your good gifts to us. And it's, it reminds us that we're your children. It reminds us uh, that we're developing that sensitivity to your Spirit's voice when we hear it. And so we pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to act on those convictions uh, that you're giving us, uh, to confess the sin and to take steps uh, to, to deal with that and live in freedom from it, all the while, of course, looking to our Savior and his, his uh, perfect, spotless righteousness as we were singing about, that we would leave it with him, that we would recognize that it's been dealt with at the cross, and that even now our Lord is interceding for us at your right hand, Father. We thank you for that. May it give us comfort, and may we we sense even today a renewed passion to live in your presence day by day. We trust you for it, and we pray that as this day and this week wears on, you will continue to empower us to live it and, and make it a reality and see that fruit of it in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray these things. And everyone said, Amen. Let's stand one more time and respond together.